life of Moses, and uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Exodus chapter, I mean Numbers chapter 20, and there should be a printed outline in your bulletin if you got one on the way in. If not, feel free to get up and grab one, or there are printed manuscripts of the message as well, and all of those for the last 26 years are on the church website. You can access them there. I'm going to read a shorter passage. I think last time I had 50 verses to give you the gist of the message. Today it's only 13, so I'm going to read from Numbers 21 through 13. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. There was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It's not a place of grain or figs, or vines, or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly. And the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, That means contention. Because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. When you're watching the Olympics and you're watching a long-distance race, it's always sad to see a long-distance runner who's maybe leading the race and heading into the final lap, and he stumbles and falls. And you realize all of the many, many, many hours that he has spent training and working toward the gold were just lost in that final lap of the race. You know, it's been said that the Bible paints its heroes warts and all, and that's true of many of the great men of God in the Bible who ran well for a while 
But then toward the end, they stumbled and fell. You know of David, godly man, man after God's own heart, wrote many of the beloved Psalms that we read. And he was probably in his early 50s, I'm guessing, when he stumbled and fell with Bathsheba, committed adultery, and then plotted to have her husband, who was Uriah, was a loyal, faithful man, one of David's mighty men, but he had him killed in battle. King Solomon, David's son, had extraordinary wisdom. Israel enjoyed unprecedented prosperity under his rule. But then he multiplied wives, and as he got older, his wives turned his heart against the Lord to idolatry. Another king in the same line, King Asa, began by doing good and and right in the sight of the Lord his God. He made many godly reforms in Israel, but then after 36 years of a godly reign, he was threatened with invasion. Rather than trusting in the Lord, he stripped the temple of its silver and gold, sent it to the invading king to stave him off, And then a prophet came and rebuked him for his lack of faith. And instead of repenting, Asa imprisoned the uh, prophet who was rebuking him. Another godly king, Jehoshaphat, tried to reunite the nation. He had done many reforms. He was a godly man. tried to bring the north and south together again after their division But he did it by allying himself with Ahab, a wicked king, and then later with Ahab's wicked son, Ahaziah. After him, King Joash began by repairing the house of the Lord. He became a king at age seven. He was protected from the wicked Athaliah who slaughtered off all of the Davidic line except for him. He began well. Uh, repaired the temple, instituted reforms, but then later he abandoned the Lord, fell into idolatry, and murdered the, man, the son of the man who had protected his life and raised him. After him, King Hezekiah, another godly king, restored worship in Judah. They celebrated a Passover like hadn't been celebrated in decades. And he brought amazing victories. And then late in life, he showed the Babylonian envoys all of his treasures, setting the stage for the later Babylonian invasion. I could go on and on, but these and other examples warn us that starting well is no guarantee of finishing well. Past faithfulness and obedience, you'd like to think you build up an immunity against sin, but past faithfulness and obedience are no guarantee of future faithfulness and obedience. And even a lifetime of walking with God does not build up sort of a protective shield and ensure that we're going to finish well. And in our text, we see one of the greatest men of God in all history, Moses, And 
Moses stumbles near the finish line. He, he had for 40 years the vision, the commitment, the dedication to bring Israel into the promised land. And now he makes a single mistake and God says, you're out of the lineup. You're done. Someone else will lead my people into the land. It's a sad chapter, Numbers 20. It begins with the death of Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron. It ends with the death of Aaron himself, the high priest. And these stories are a grim reminder of what God has already decreed, and that is that there would be no one age 20 and above back when they had rejected the um, word of the two good spies to go in and take the land. They sided with the ten unbelieving spies, and God said, no one 20 and above will enter the land. They're all going to die in the wilderness. And here, Miriam and then Aaron die. And then sandwiched in between is this story of Moses' anger Toward the grumbling people, he strikes the rock in disobedience instead of speaking to it as God commands. And because he and Aaron, in verse 12, it says, they did not believe God to treat him as holy. And because of that, God says someone else will bring Israel into the land. I believe to sum up the message, it is to say that to glorify God all believers, but especially those of us who are in leadership, should seek to finish well. Now, our text isn't comprehensive. A lot more could be said on the subject, of course, but there are five essentials here for finishing well. Moses did the first one anyway well, but he didn't do so well on the others. And the first principle here is that to finish well, go from your critic's presence into the presence of the Lord. It says in verse 1, this incident took place in the first month. It doesn't state the year, but most scholars think it's probably the first month of the last year before Israel entered the promised land. So they've been out in the wilderness all this time, and now they're poised, ready to go into the land. They're back in Kadesh. Um, Some think they stayed there most of the time, but Kadesh is the spot they were in when the spies went into the land. Ten of them came back with a negative report, and uh, so the people grumbled and said, no, we're not going into the land. And they also complained at that time with the problem that we face here, and that is there's no water. And so they grumble, rather than doing as they should have done, saying, we need to pray because God has met our need for water before, and God can meet our need for water now, so let's all call together and see the Lord meet the need. They don't do that. They contend with Moses, verses 3 through 5. If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place 
It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. And then in verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And then the glory of the Lord appeared to them. That phrase, from the presence of the assembly, normally I think it's used from the presence of the Lord. And it's there to show us the contrast. Moses and Aaron go from the presence of these angry, contentious people into the presence of the Lord where they get a vision again of His glory. And you know, that's always a good thing to do when you face criticism. Uh, If you're serving the Lord, you will face criticism. And rather than get angry and striking back at your critics, take refuge in the presence of the Lord. Think about the fact that Jesus, who had no basis for any criticism against him, he was sinless, he was perfect before the Lord, He probably caught more criticism and contention from the religious leaders than anyone else has. And I'm not even close to being worthy to untie the thong of his sandals, as John the Baptist said. And so, who am I? If people criticize me, okay, why should I expect better? But then, when you're in the Lord's presence, evaluate the criticism, Maybe some of it's valid and you need to incorporate the suggestion, the the change that's needed. Maybe it's totally false and you can just dismiss it. But rather than counterattacking, which is our normal way, when somebody's angry with you, you get angry back and get into a fight with them. I think Moses rightly teaches us here, when you're criticized, go from the presence of your critics into the presence of the Lord. So, start off with, Moses and Aaron did well. But then, secondly, to finish well, deal with your besetting sin. Charles Swindoll, the uh, pastor and commentator, has a book on Moses, and he contends that Moses had a lifelong anger problem that he never dealt with that led up to this uh, terrible moment at the end of his life. He points out that Moses was angry back when he killed the Egyptian taskmaster whom he saw beating one of his fellow Israeli people when they were in bondage in Egypt. Because of that, he had to flee to the wilderness for 40 years. Then God called him back to go and confront Pharaoh and demand that Pharaoh let his people go. But God warned Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. In spite of knowing that that's what the Lord was doing, we read in one of the encounters with Pharaoh when he refused to let Israel go, that Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And that really wasn't necessary. Then later... They go out of the land. They're at Mount Sinai. And Moses is on the mountain with the Lord. He goes down with the Ten Commandments. And he sees the people worshiping around the golden calf and partying and all of that. And in anger, 
He throws down the commandments and smashes them. And Swindoll argues that while his anger may have been righteous, really it wasn't of the Lord to throw down those tablets and break them as he did. And so Moses' unchecked anger was perhaps the reason that now, 40 years later, in anger he strikes the rock twice uh, rather than speaking to it as God commanded. And as a result, God excludes him from leading the people into the promised land. Again, some of Moses' anger was righteous, and there is such a thing, but I think we're all prone to justify our anger as righteous a bit too often. Um, there was, whenever I think I'm righteously angry, I think of this old Scottish hymn writer, George Matheson. I think he was blind. But he made the comment, There are times when I do well to be angry, but I have mistaken the times. And I think that's correct for me. Or the Greek philosopher Aristotle said this, Anyone can become angry, that's easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, and in the right way, that is not easy. And certainly, he's right. Now, maybe your besetting sin is not anger. Maybe it's something else. But whatever it is, deal with it now. Otherwise, it could be there to trip you up down the line when uh, you're toward the end of your journey and you don't want that. The third principle here is that to finish well, then develop the habit of obedience in what may seem to be relatively small things. You know, when you first read this story... Honestly, it seems as if the Lord is making a big deal out of a little deal. That's the impression you get. I mean, what's the big deal? He commands Moses to speak to the rock. Moses is understandably frustrated with these people who just keep complaining over and over and over again. And so, wrongly, yes, he strikes the rock twice with his rod. Um... And as a result of that, the Lord says, Moses, what you've worked for for the last 40 years is over. You're not going to lead the people into the land. And you go, wow. You know, I mean, what's the big deal? Isn't the Lord being overly harsh with this man? Remember, Moses gave up the glory of living in Pharaoh's palace. All of that comfort, all of that luxury. He identifies with the people of God. They've had 40 rough years in the wilderness And they're poised to go into the land now in the last year before they're going in. And God yanks him from the lineup because of one sin. And you say, well, where's God's grace in all of this? Now, let me say, first of all, we know God is always gracious. And God is never harsh with his his servants. So we have to eliminate that line of thinking. So then you say, well, why did God do this? My answer is that what may seem to us to be a relatively small sin may be a major sin to God. Because God's ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. And God labels Moses' sin in verse 12 as not believing him to treat him as holy. Not believing God 
is in effect to call him a liar. Have you ever had somebody say to you, I don't believe you. What are they doing? They're in effect saying, you're lying. And so that's a big sin, not to believe in God. Not to treat God as holy, especially if you're a leader of God's people, is to dethrone God from his glory where the angels surround him, cover their faces and cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it's to lower him and cause his people to disrespect or disregard him. And that's a big sin as well. The incident here is similar to one 40 years previously when God did direct Moses, strike the rock with your rod, and it produced water for the grumbling people. But there's a big difference. This time God doesn't say strike the rock. He says speak to the rock. Now he directs him to take his rod. The rod was a symbol of God's authority. And... Moses obeyed. Verse 9 says he took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. But then God says, when you get there, speak to the rock. And instead, angrily, Moses accuses the people of rebellion, strikes the rock, not once but twice. And so you have to ask again, now, why did God change the command? And why is this such a big deal? Well, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says that the rock was a type of Christ. And in the Old Testament, many times God is spoken of as the rock, but Paul says it was a type of Christ. The rock that followed them was Christ. When Jesus came the first time, he had to come and be smitten, to be struck. He was wounded for our transgressions. He came to die for our sin. But having died, he only died once and was raised from the dead. And now we can speak to him. He doesn't have to die again. He isn't sacrificed over and over and over and over. And when he was smitten the first time, water came forth, living water. And he gave his life that all who are thirsty may drink. But now that we have drank of that living water and our souls are thirsty, we don't have to crucify Christ again. Rather, we can go into the Holy of Holies through Him. He's our faithful high priest. So, you see the difference? Moses, by striking the rock the second time, messed up the type. (laughs) The type is Christ, who came once to die, and now He lives to make intercession for His people. Pastor Roger Ellsworth observed, God is very precise about the whole business of salvation, and we must be precise as well. Also, I thought Matthew Henry had a good observation. He said, he, God, bids him speak to the rock, which would do as it was bidden, to shame the people who had been so often spoken to and would not hear nor obey. Their hearts were harder than this rock, not so tender, Not so yielding, not so obedient. So the point is, don't shrug off God's seemingly small commands as if, hey, no big deal. It may be a big deal to God, uh, even though it's small to us. 
So first, to avoid stumbling at the finish line, go from your critic's presence to the Lord's presence. Second, deal with any besetting sins. And then thirdly, develop this habit of obedience, even in relatively minor things, seemingly to you. Fourthly, to finish well, be careful to give God the glory for everything that he uses you to accomplish. When Moses struck the rock in disobedience to the Lord's command to speak to it, in verse 10, he says to the grumbling crowd, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And the clear implication is, Moses and Aaron are the ones who are going to do this thing and bring the water out of the rock. But Alexander McLaren rather pithily observed, He who claims power to himself denies it to God. And that's what they were doing. Now, the interesting thing is, even though Moses disobeyed God, the water gushed forth out of the rock. You would think God would have said, nope, no water till you obey. He disobeys God and the water gushes forth. And you know, I think that sometimes... You can see success in a ministry that you're involved in, in spite of your own rebellion, sin, failure, shortcomings. And you have to be careful when that happens, because you can start saying, I'm the one who brought the water from the rock. No, uh -uh. (laughs) if it were up to me, that rock would be a rock and there would not be a drop coming out of it. If there's any water from the rock, it's the Lord who brings it forth. And so, results don't necessarily reflect faithfulness in ministry. I think it's obvious that some of the biggest churches in America right now are pastored by heretics who are unfaithful to God's Word. And some of the smallest churches in America have godly, faithful pastors, men of prayer, Men of the Word, and they're shepherding maybe 50 to 100 people every Sunday faithfully. Nobody knows about them. They don't get written up in the church growth journals or anything. But God knows. God knows. The Apostle Paul was always careful to give God the credit for any fruit that he saw in his ministry. In 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian people were boasting I am of Apollos, and then another faction. No, I am of Paul. And so Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, notice, but God was causing the growth. God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Later in that same letter, he said, chapter 15, verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored more than, even more than all of them, meaning the other apostles. And yet, he adds, not I, but the grace of God with me. And grace, of course, is God's undeserved favor. Paul saying, I didn't deserve it. God did it. 
And then in Romans 15:18 concerning his ministry, he says, "For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed." Or again, a verse I go to almost every week. 2 Corinthians 3.5, Paul says, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. We have to depend on Him. And Paul's overall principle, 1 Corinthians 10.31, was, So then, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So any results we see, it's not because I did it, it's because God did it to His glory. And then the final principle, to finish well, believe God and treat Him as holy. The Lord's perspective on Moses' striking the rock in verse 12 is, because you have not believed me, To treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So as I understand that statement, unbelief was the root or the underlying sin. And the sin of unbelief led to Moses then not treating God as holy. Regarding unbelief, Alfred Edersheim, a a Jewish Christian believer from the 19th century, he pointed out that the people were unbelieving because they were despairing of getting into the land and they directed their frustrations against Moses and Aaron, whom they thought was the fault of Moses and Aaron that they weren't going into the land. The fault was their unbelief. On the other hand, Moses and Aaron despaired of getting into the land, and they were aiming their frustration at the people, thinking we're not going to get into the land because of this complaining, griping, unbelieving people. But both cases, they were looking at people, not the Lord. And Edersheim observed, but at the bottom, the ground of despair and of rebellion, both on the part of the people and of Moses, was precisely the same In both cases, it was really unbelief of God. And so the the point is, when we begin to look at people and their problems, whether it's people looking at the leadership and accusing them, or the leadership looking at the people and accusing them, in both cases we're at fault because we're not looking at the Lord and His promise. And His promise regarding the church is, I will build my church. So we have to come back again and say, Lord, that's your promise. You promised to give Israel the land, and you kept that promise. You promised to build your church. Lord, we're going to lean on that and uh, trust in you. Another commentator, F.B. Meyer, pointed out that Moses may have been trusting more in his rod than in the Lord. Moses' rod was the symbol of authority God gave him. Remember with Pharaoh, he threw the rod on the ground, it became a snake. Pharaoh's servants did the same thing. Moses' snake ate their snake and then became a rod again. Same rod, he struck the Nile, it turned to blood. He struck the Red Sea and it parted and so on. So it was a symbol of God's authority. 
And Meyer's point is, when we've seen God use a method, it's easy to start relying on the method rather than on the Lord in what we're doing. And Meyer also notes that faith had been Moses' strong suit, and often our areas of strength can become our areas of greatest vulnerability, where we begin to rely on our strength, again, not on the Lord. For example, speaking as a preacher, if I think, well, I've got the system down, and of course I have a method or a system that I prepare sermons by after 41 years, but if I start thinking, yep, I've got the system, and it works, and it's worked for all these years, so let's just plug in the system and go, boom, it's going to bomb. Why? Because I'm not trusting the Lord. It's not the system that works. Certainly not me that works. It's, it's the Lord that anoints His Word and uses it. And so whatever you're doing, don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your proven track record and everything that you've seen God do through you. Every time, every time, every time, look to the Lord. So <clears throat> unbelief was the root sin. And then stemming from the unbelief, God says, you haven't treated me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. And the Lord repeats that charge in Numbers chapter 27, verse 14. And he reminds Moses there, For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. And so disobedience to God's commands means we're not believing God and we're not treating God as holy. Now, as I said, the rock is identified in the New Testament as Christ. And throughout the Old Testament, God is often called our rock, the the firm one on whom we stand. And so to strike the rock was, in effect, to strike the Lord and to treat him as common, as not holy. First time, yes, because Christ came to die. Second time, uh, it's to despise what Christ did the first time. And then also Moses implies, as I said, that he and Aaron would be the ones to bring forth the water. And that means he's not treating God as holy, that God is the one who does this, but rather exalting himself. Now, as a result of that, God imposes this penalty. Moses, you and Aaron aren't bringing the people into the land. I think to understand what happened here, you have to go beyond the words on the page and feel emotionally with Moses. I can't imagine how that must have devastated Moses emotionally. Forty years, he has labored for one thing. He's endured hardship. He's endured heat and cold and, and all of the problems With one goal, I'm going to lead the people into the promised land. And now it's gone. And it must have just been a terrible emotional blow for Moses. But you know what? God is gracious. And Moses actually got into the land. You know when? In the Mount of Transfiguration. 
Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up on the mountain, and Jesus is transfigured before him, but he wasn't alone. Who stood there with him? Moses and Elijah. And they saw him. And there's Elijah, or there's Moses standing in the land, in the promised land, with the glory of Christ, which is far better than anything he could have imagined. And you know, it just shows, in spite of our failures, in spite of our disappointments, one day soon, we'll see Jesus in the land. You know, we're going to be with him in glory, and all the victory will be his, and we'll all be rejoicing around the throne for what God has accomplished through us in spite of our weakness and failure. Charles Simeon has an observation too. He says that Moses represented the law, and the law can never lead us into the land. The law condemned Because we've all broken the law. And as James says, one strike with the law and you're out. You can keep the whole law all your life and you fail once and you've broken. It's like a mirror or a window. One break and it's broken. And we've all violated God's law. And we stand guilty before him. And so what do we need? We need Joshua to lead us into the land. You know what Joshua, the name It's the same as Yeshua, Jesus. It means God saves. And so we need a new Joshua, Jesus, who's going to lead us into the promised land as we trust in him. And so the Apostle Paul in Romans 10.4 said, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. So he fulfilled the law. We trust in him. God credits his righteousness to us and our sin to him. And we stand justified before God. So put your trust in Christ is the bottom line. I imagine this morning if I asked for a show of hands, I would be somewhat shocked to find that there are many of you who are what I would call very deprived in your Christian life. And that is because you've never read the life of George Mueller of Bristol. George Mueller of Bristol is one of the classic books, I would put it in the top five, that I've ever read. I read it in the summer of 1970. I was 23 years old, and I can tell you that book changed my life. It changed my life. And I can't too highly recommend that you read the life of George Mueller. Mueller was a man who prayed earnestly, according to A.T. Pearson, that Mueller might live a life and do a work which should be a convincing proof that God hears prayer and that it's safe to trust him at all times. And what happened was Mueller was an immigrant from Prussia or modern Germany to England. He was living in Bristol, England. And back then there were many, many orphans on the street. And they were impoverished, running wild. They had no parents to care for them. And he and his wife determined before the Lord that they would form an orphan house and care for these orphans. And they would not make their needs known to any human except to the Lord in prayer. And all the people that worked closely with Mueller over the years were sworn not to tell anyone of any financial needs, only the Lord. And over the years, he wrote journals to account For how the Lord had provided time and time and time and time again 
right according to their need, only in response to their prayer. And they provided for thousands and thousands of orphan children. Mueller lived into his 90s. And at his funeral service, a man related how a friend had said to Mueller when he was an old man, he said, when God calls you home, it'll be like a ship going into harbor full sail. And Mueller corrected him and said, oh no, it is poor George Mueller who needs daily to pray, hold thou me up in my goings that my footsteps slip not. And then Pearson adds that it was the lives of men in Scripture who fell later in life, as I related to you at the beginning of this message. It was those men in Scripture, he says, that were a perpetual warning, leading Mueller to pray that he might never thus depart from the Lord in his old age. And I remember the first time I read that, I went, no way. You know, there's no way George Mueller is going to depart from the Lord in his old age. But Mueller knew his own heart. And he knew that he stood and he walked only by the grace of God. And he finished well. Finishing well in life depends on running well right now. If you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in Jesus, you're not even in the race. You're not even a contestant. You begin with God by coming to the cross as a guilty sinner and acknowledging, Lord, I have sinned against you. I deserve your judgment and your wrath. But I understand that you provided a Savior. You provided one who died in my place to take the penalty I deserve. And I am trusting in your promise that if I believe in Jesus, I will have eternal life as your free gift. You begin there. And that's the most important thing you can do with your life. And then, after that, meet every day with the Lord, first thing in the day, in the Word, in His Word, and in prayer. George Mueller used to say often, the first business of every morning should be to secure happiness in God. So, Sure, make a pot of coffee, whatever you got to do to wake up. I'm not a morning person. But then sit down with your Bible and pray and ask the Lord to conform you to the image of Christ as you read His Word and as you spend time in prayer. And then when you encounter problems, and you will, whether it's critics, health problems, other issues in life, instead of getting you angry... Have them drive you into the Lord's presence. Go from the presence of your critics into the presence of the Lord. If you've got a besetting sin, and I think we all do, identify it, deal with it, and gain victory over it now so it doesn't plague you at the end of the race. Develop a habit of obedience in small things now so that, again, you don't fail. Trust in the Lord at all times as you give Him glory and you treat Him as holy in all of your life, realizing anything I accomplish has to be from the Lord. And then one day soon, you'll be standing before the Lord and you'll hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant, because 
you finished well. Let's pray. Again, if you're here this morning without Jesus, you have a desperate need because if you walk out of here, have a heart attack, get hit by a car, whatever, life is pretty tentative. And you're not prepared to stand before a holy God who is just in all His ways and who will punish all sin. And either Jesus bore your punishment or you will bear it. Why risk that? Cry out to the Lord in your heart, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And He will. If you've stumbled in your walk with Christ, God allows us to get up and keep running. Just get up, confess it to the Lord, keep going on with Him, and trust Him, and He will use your life for His purpose and glory. Father, we fail often, we stumble often. Thank You for this example that You've given us in Your Word. I pray that Your Spirit would apply it to every heart and life in a way that I simply am not able to do. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to conclude.